Welcome to Art History Awesome. I'm your host, Amelia, and today's episode is about the history of art history. That's right, first episode and we're already getting meta. As an area of study, art history is a relatively new discipline. Well, depending on whom you believe to be the father of art history. Well, there are those who would argue that Giorgio Vasari was the first person to write about the lives and works of artists, aka the most basic definition of art history. There are numerous issues with his works, all of which we will cover in another episode, because there is a lot to unpack there. For today, we will consider German academic Johann Joachim Winkelmann as the first true art historian, as far as we know. Winkelmann was born on December 9, 1717, in what is now the state of Brandenburg, located in the northeast of modern-day Germany. Although born into poverty, a passion for learning pushed him through school into work as a tutor and teacher. From there, he became a librarian to Count von Bino, an important figure in the Saxon court with a massive collection of books, many of which focused on Greek and Roman history. This was Winkelmann's first real exposure to the art of the ancient Mediterranean. After many years in the Count's service, Winkelmann finally traveled outside of Northern Europe. With a small stipend from the Count, he traveled to Rome in 1755, where he worked as a librarian in a number of noble homes. Winkelmann once again found himself living in relative poverty until finally taken in by Cardinal Albini in 1759. Cardinal Albini was, as many religious men were at the time, a famed collector of arts and antiquities, especially those of the ancient Greeks and Romans. For the next five years, Winkelmann wrote and studied tirelessly, his efforts culminating in The History of the Art of Antiquity the first published work surveying the evolution of the cultural history of antiquity. Now, before we discuss the actual book itself, we must first define what antiquity meant to Winkelmann and 18th century Europe as a whole. Antiquity and ancient peoples were the Egyptians, the Etruscans, the Romans, and most importantly, the Greeks. This narrow, Eurocentric view of art and art history is still prevalent in art historical studies today, a fact that is, in my opinion, detrimental to the profession. The romanticization and the championing of Greek art as the peak of ancient art and beauty influenced the core development of art history, something we will see throughout the rest of this episode and, if I'm being honest, most of this podcast. Okay, back to Winkelmann. Using his access to one of the finest collections of Greek and Roman art in Italy at the time, Winkelmann was able to detail the evolution of style in Greek art, categorizing them into distinct phases, a tradition that continues in art history today. If you want a more detailed account of the history of the art of antiquity and Winkelmann's division of styles, I highly recommend a series of well-researched and cited blog posts on Wesley edu, written for an exhibition on Winkelmann. For the direct link, find the post for the episode at ameliarose.com under the Art History Awesome tab. For the purpose of our discussion of the wider development of art historical studies, there are two main things we should take away from Winkelmann's work. One, the division of artistic styles and conventions into distinct categories or periods. And two, Greek art is the best art ever. Like, oh my god, for real, like the best, hashtag best. 
I cannot emphasize just how much Greek art is the perfect ideal. Specifically, the ideal of the male body seen in Greek nude sculpture. This would probably be a good time to mention that Winkelmann was an openly gay, raging homosexual. Ding, 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 ding. It is our first gay icon of art history. Our boy Winkelmann was not shy about his love for the male form. In fact, even his contemporaries, such as fellow German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, recognized that his opinions on art were at least a little influenced by his personal homoeroticism. But to be fair, look up an image of the Hermes and ask yourself, can you blame him? After his untimely death in 1768 at the hands of Francesco Arcangeli, no relation, Winkelmann's writings became one of the main catalysts of the neoclassical movement, a period in European art stylized after the Greek and Roman ideals Winkelmann obsessed over. In the visual arts, this movement spanned from about 1765 to 1830 and included such artists as David, Peronisi, and Ingres. For an example of neoclassical painting, I suggest David's Oath of the Horatii. Again, check this episode's post for all the art and sources referenced today. While the artistic community rediscovered the joy of the ideal male form, academia set its sights on continuing the categorization of art and style. We're going to skim through the late 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries because I don't want this episode to be eight hours long. In the mid-19th century, the Vienna School of Art History was the mecca of art historical thought in Europe. Led by scholars, including Eloise Reigel and Franz Wyckoff, students and teachers of the school focused heavily on art after antiquity all the way up to the Baroque period in the 17th century. While thinking has changed since this time, many eras of art history designated at the Vienna School are still used today. As we move into the 20th century, we see a number of approaches to art history emerging simultaneously. Freudian and Marxist movements both had influential subsects in art history. Regardless of my or your personal opinion on these schools of thought, they made the use of psychology and social theory in art history more prevalent, rounding out what many outsiders considered to be a mainly visual field. The 1970s introduced much-needed criticism of art history on two main fronts. Feminist theory, brought about by Linda Nochlin's essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists?, and an examination of imperialistic ethnic representation and interpretation outlined in Edward Said's Orientalism. It is here, dear listeners, that we must take a pause to talk about the subjective side of art history. This is not science or math. In this field, opinions and interpretations do have value in some sense. I have years of study and a graduate degree in art history, which gives me some minuscule bit of authority to say this. Said's Orientalism is definitely still worth a read, and Linda Nochlin's Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists can suck it. Whoa! Amelia! I'm sure you're saying right now. Those are some strong words about an essay that you just said brought much-needed criticism to art history. And you're right. I did say that. And it did. In the 1970s. While both works did influence a shift in thinking that echoes in the profession to this day, Said's work, in my opinion, holds up much better than Nochlin's. While Said's work is arguably more controversial, there are still many points that are valid in 2019. 
Conversely, we are so far removed from the time and form of feminism Nochlin's work is rooted in that many of the points Nochlin makes are simply invalid to a contemporary audience. This is perhaps amplified by the fact that while Orientalism is an entire book, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists is an essay, and a fairly short one at that. If you really want to learn more about art history, I do think you should read both but I caution you to consider time and context for both works. All right, now that I've alienated at least 32% of my peers, let's shift our focus to the format of art history courses themselves over the past 40 to 50 years. I am proud to say that I come from a dynasty, a dynasty of art history. My favorite mother was also an art history major in college, a fact I did not realize until well after I chose my path. I was lucky enough to convince her not only to tell me about her classes in college, but all of you as well. I am pleased to present an interlude from my mother, Elaine, about art history classes back in the day. Art history was part of the studio art department, not large enough to stand alone. Classes were small, the room we used most often had two long tables set end to end, and we all sat on one side. No laptops. It was a slide projector and carousels full of 35 millimeter slides. Cool going. Most had been purchased in collections, but many had been taken by Sister Magdalene in her travels. She taught all of the art history classes and was art department chair. The slide room off her office was sacrosanct. Only Sister Magdalene and her chosen student assistant were allowed to touch the slides. It was the most prestigious work study job in the art department. Now, please don't think penguins when I mention Sister M. She was an early nun to wear civvies and play sheep. She was a savvy discount shopper on museum visits to New York. Not your average nun, God rest her soul. The survey text was H.W. Jansen's History of Art. First published in 1962, it was the leading survey text at the time. And to quote his 1982 obituary, has since become the standard by which current art history textbooks are measured. However, in the mid-90s, his work started to be strongly criticized for not being inclusive. According to feminist art historians Norma Brood and Mary Gerard, quote, women artists in the 1950s and 1960s suffered professional isolation, not only from one another, but also from their own history. In an era when women artists of the past had been virtually written out of the history of art, H.W. Jansen's influential textbook, History of Art, first published in 1962, contained neither the name nor the work of a single woman artist, thus excluding women from the history of art. But in 1975, we didn't know that. I was as much intrigued by the anthropological aspects of Roman amphora and how they were used in daily life as I was by the elegance of the shape the decorations and the scenes portrayed. In Gothic and Roman architecture, especially cathedrals, it was the evolution of design and building principles. It was how the exterior and interior sculptures were used to teach the faithful as much as the aesthetics. This was at a time when the mass was in Latin and the general population couldn't read a Bible, which was also in Latin. And so on through all of the eras and periods of art. The tests were in two parts. The ID section was a bitch. There would be X number of slides shown, at least 20 or 30, drawn from everything we'd seen. So we had to memorize all of them. 
Title painter date. Title painter date. Endless reviewing. Endless self-quizzing. The second part of the exam was essay format. Several slides to write about, again, from those we'd seen. Sometimes it was a pair of slides to compare and contrast. For the most part, we were not asked to give original insight. We were to recall the formal analysis from class. Methodologies have, thankfully, changed since then. The focus has shifted away from rote memorization of titles and dates, aka things you can Google easily, to a broader look at interpreting and understanding art through visual examination, a study of the socioeconomic and historical context in which a piece was made or an artist lived, and an even more refined version of psychoanalysis and theory. Additionally, survey courses look beyond Europe and include previously ignored groups such as women, people of color, and indigenous cultures. Don't get me wrong, there's still a long way to go, especially concerning indigenous peoples and the repatriation of cultural objects. But that's a discussion for another day. As for tests and exams, while they still require knowing the title, artist, historical period, and general date of a work of art, most exams today push students to think critically about the subject and use what they have learned to present fully formed, well-supported analyses, preferably in complete sentences. That's about it for today's crash course in the history of art history. You can follow Art History Awesome on Twitter and Instagram at ARHAwesome. You can also send an email with any art and or history related questions to arthistoryawesome at gmail.com. Finally, you can find all the art and sources mentioned in this episode at ameliarose.com. Just look for this episode's post under the Art History Awesome tab. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if you could share this with a friend. I'm currently also open to topic suggestions, so if you want to tweet us or email us or comment on our Instagram about any of those things, that would be great. Uh, once again, my name is Amelia, and thank you for listening to Art History Awesome.